This week we do wrap up this series that we've been going through called Different Jesus. And what we've been learning through this uh, scripture series is how people often of the faith and even those who loosely affiliate with Christianity will take Jesus and they take the different parts and different uh, positions and, and preachings of Jesus to kind of fit their narrative and they form a different Jesus. And all throughout history people have appropriated Jesus They've turned them into their own personal Jesus uh, to fit whatever their lifestyle was, whatever their angle was. Um, and they've taken the Jesus of the Bible and they've twisted him into something that fits their need. The true Jesus we find in the Gospels. Amen? And for the last two weeks we've been seeing the heart of Jesus. And we learned that in Jesus we see a different kind of love. And this love was displayed to this broken woman who interrupted this dinner party, really came upon the scene unannounced, uninvited, unwanted. Uh, people were judging her. People were unaccepting of her. But Jesus, because he loves differently, accepts the woman, receives her offering, and then blesses her by forgiving her. He has a different kind of love. Last week we learned that Jesus also has a different kind of compassion. Jesus... Uh, would stop what he was doing and interact with those that were marginalized and those that people didn't want anything to do with, Jesus would stop and spend time with them. He would hear them. He would acknowledge them. He would recognize their pain. Their suffering became Jesus' suffering. And he showed us that he had a different kind of compassion. This compassion was put on display when he healed this blind beggar named Bartimaeus who was calling to him in faith. Jesus stopping everything. To bless a blind beggar. As we, as Omar said earlier, enter into Holy Week, we remember the cross and we remember Jesus' sacrifice for us. And one of the images that we often see of Jesus is this, um, how could I say it, this tough guy, Jesus. Jesus the superhero. I have some images here of how people have kind of use Jesus, this is a different image, but the one I want to show you is the one that shows Jesus as kind of like this superhero quality, uh, a Jesus with the S on his chest, right? The, the Jesus that can't be phased by anything, the, 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 the ripped Jesus, right? I mean, look at Jesus on the cross. I don't know if he looked like that. Maybe he did. I don't know. But there's this really strong, muscular, hey, Jesus is my superhero Jesus, I like this one here with the little angels um, around him there with the Superman outfit. And there's this image of this super powerful Jesus that oftentimes forgets that Jesus was also fully human. This is a mischaracterization of what Jesus is. It glorifies His divine nature. And Jesus was truly divine. Uh, Bible scholars call this the hypostatic union. And it's the way we describe the two natures of Jesus. Jesus being fully divine, being fully God, always being God, but yet being fully human. We know that Jesus was the Word made flesh that came and dwelt among us. He was fully divine. He never was not God. He was always God. And, and, and He existed uh, before all eternity and will continue to exist beyond all eternity. And Jesus is, is fully God, but He was fully man. It's the hypostatic union. The divine nature mixed with the human nature 
of Christ. We see the human nature of Jesus throughout His existence. This God who created the heavens and earth, who put the universe together, but yet was born in a manger. Think of that. This God who's the ruler of the kingdom of heaven, where there's streets laid of gold, came and lived a life of a simple man, a carpenter, right? And oftentimes had no place to even lay his head. The king of the kingdom of heaven, where the streets are made of gold, here on this earth, had no place to rest his head. Think of that. The God, the man, Jesus, who walked on water, but yet felt thirst and needed water to survive. Jesus, who was so full of power to the fact that a woman reached out and just touched the hem of His garment and she was healed. This Jesus that was so full of the power but yet felt tired, needed times where He needed to come apart and take a break from the crowd and just rest and relax. This was Jesus on display. Fully divine, but yet fully human. And in here in Matthew 26, what we find is an example of the humanity of Jesus. What we see here in Matthew 26 is Jesus in His final hours is, is feeling the burden of His calling. He's distressed. The Bible tells us that He's feeling crushed. You see, Jesus was experiencing what we experience in our humanity. The abandonment. Jesus was feeling His abandonment. Because that Sunday when He entered in Jerusalem, He was greeted there by thousands waving the palms. I mean, you guys have palms. Show me your palms this morning. That's what the people were doing. Waving palms to Jesus. Imagine thousands as far as your eyes can see. Waving palms, greeting Jesus on Sunday. By Thursday evening, it went from thousands to only 12. Really, 11. And now after the dinner, it's gone from 11 to 3. And the three that were with them weren't really with them. Have you ever thought people were with you, but they were not really with you? The abandonment, the rejection of sometimes your closest people. Jesus is feeling that. We see Jesus here in the garden. The story coming full circle, right? From Adam, where Adam wounds humanity in a garden by saying, my will be done. Jesus now heals humanity in a garden by saying, your will be done. It's this story of Jesus' humanity. And this story should bring us great comfort this morning. Great encouragement because we see Jesus dealing with the things that are dealing with Him. And He's praying with deep anguish, with despair, with grief, and with sorrow. And I'm here to tell you this morning that if Jesus dealt with those emotions, if Jesus felt that, then we can feel that too. And because He felt that way, we could have confidence going to Him when we feel that way because He knows your pain. This is a story of Jesus and His humanity. You see, this is what the writer of Hebrews mentioned here in the Scriptures where he says it was necessary for Him to be made just like us. His brother's and sisters. He needed to be made like us. So later on in chapter 4, you, you can see there that so He could understand our weaknesses. Because Jesus faced the same testings, same trials that we do. But yet He did not sin. So this gives us boldness 
to go before him because we see a Jesus who knows what we're going through. This image of this superhero Jesus is a mischaracterization because Jesus felt the need to surrender. I love the juxtaposition here of this scene. If you could just imagine with me the dichotomy of Jesus in the garden. The outside image is an image of beauty. This is a, a, a beautiful garden. This is a peaceful, serene place where Jesus would go and frequent because he knew he could have alone time with his father. On the outside, there's beauty, there's peace, there's serenity. But on the inside, Jesus is anguished. He's torn at his core because he knows what stands before him. The juxtaposition of the disciples who are sleeping peacefully on this breezy, cool night. If you've ever slept on a nice spring evening on a hammock, Peacefully, you know what that feels like, right? And here you see the disciples sleeping peacefully. But yet the Savior, just feet away from Him, sweating drops of blood from His brow, deep in prayer and anguish at what sets before Him. It's in Jesus which we see this, this, this juxtaposition of Jesus surrendering in His Spirit to what His calling was before moments surrendering in the flesh to the Roman guard. We see Jesus here in a moment of weakness in surrender be strengthened in weakness by surrender. You see, Jesus, before His death on the cross at Calvary, died to His preferences in the Garden of Gethsemane. Before dying on the cross, He needed to die to self in the Garden. And that's the lesson this morning. It's what Erwin Lutzer, pastor, author, says when he says this. He says, you become stronger only when you become weaker. When you surrender your will to God, you discover the resources to do what God requires of you. It's the, it's the juxtaposition of becoming strong through weakness. Of gaining victory through surrender. How do we gain victory? You gain victory through surrender. It makes no human sense. But it's the juxtaposition of the kingdom where the first shall be last and the last shall be first and those who surrender gain victory. If surrender leads to victory, my question this morning for us is what leads to surrender? We should ask that, right? If victory comes from surrender, what does surrender come from? Here's... The big idea, here's the whole message in a nutshell, really. The battles of life. This is huge. This, this message is so dangerous that if you could capture this, if you could grasp this, you become, you become a person of power. You become a person that's dangerous to the enemy. The battles of life are rarely won in the moment. Battles are never won there in the public space, in the, in the, in the, in the battlefield, in the arena. Though the battles are, are, are rarely ever won there. 
Oh, you might tough some out. You might grit some out. You might find some strength that comes from nowhere to push you over the top in the public space, in the battlefield. But battles are rarely won there. Where the battles are won, the battles are won before the battleground. And it's not one in public. They're one in private. And they're not one on the battlefield. You know where they're one? They're one in the prayer closet. They're one in your gardens. When it's just you and Jesus, where the people that you thought were going to be there for you are no longer there for you. And it's just you and Him. Where are other battles won? Listen, if you're going to wait to the crisis, if you're going to wait to the trauma, if you're going to wait until the battle is right in front of your face, you're done with. We'll see that here in this story. You're done with. The battles are never won in the moment, in public, on the battlefield. The, mo- the battles are always won beforehand, in private, and in the prayer closet. It's in your gardens of Gethsemane, when you're in your sorrow, your grief, your anguish, that Jesus calls you to surrender. Surrender your preferences. Surrender your limited understanding The things of this world, surrender that and instead fix your mind and fix your eyes and fix your thoughts on Him. That's what we learn from this story. So I've entitled this message, A Different Surrender. In Jesus, we see a different kind of surrender. In verse 36 of Matthew's Gospel in chapter 26, it reads like this. It says, Then Jesus went with them to the olive grove called Gethsemane. And he said, sit here while I go over there to pray. He took Peter and Zebedee's two sons, James and John, and he became anguished and distressed. We, we, we don't see Jesus like this. This is the different side of Jesus. This is the different Jesus here in the garden. The Jesus that that James and John and Peter were used to were the Jesus who was performing miracles, who was healing the sick, who was speaking words and seeing dead people raised from the grave. They saw the Jesus that was filled with power, right? And power was released to His body. And He would speak healing into the atmosphere. And and Jairus' daughter was healed miles away. This was a different Jesus who who was angry who was distressed, who was crushed. The, the, the Gospel of Luke gives us the detail that the, the, there was this, and this is a real medical condition that you could become so overwhelmed, so stressed, that the, the capillaries in, in your, under your skin burst and, and the blood that they release and the sweat will mix together and it will appear like you're sweating blood. I mean, this is how overwhelmed, this is how anguished, this is how crushed Jesus is feeling. And it makes me ask this question, why didn't the writers of the Gospel, why didn't they portray this super powerful Jesus who feared nothing, who felt no anguish, who would you know, tear open his cloak and reveal the S and say, all right, you know, uh, Pilate, bring it on. Uh, Pharisees, bring it on. Religious rulers, bring it on. Why didn't the writers of the Gospel portray Jesus like that? You know why? Because that's not how he was. <laughs> this is Jesus. There's no Superman on his chest. Jesus was struggling. May I even say depressed. 
we need to see this Jesus. Because we all go through moments where we feel just like this. You cannot feel abandonment by your parents and your loved ones and not hurt. You cannot experience the loss of a loved one and not hurt. You cannot experience betrayal by those closest to you and not hurt. You cannot be abused in the midnight hour and not hurt. You cannot go through divorce and not hurt. You cannot go through sickness or a pandemic without feeling hurt. You cannot suffer injustice or racism and hate and not feel hurt. Jesus knows this hurt. And it's this Jesus which we need to know is the real Jesus. This is what makes Jesus different. This is why I follow Jesus. Because all these other gods and all these other religions, they elevate their God to something that's not even human, something that's not even real. But our God was fully God, but yet fully man, so He understands our pain so we could go to Him when we feel crushed, when we feel anguished, when we're broken, when we're suffering, when we're overwhelmed. The Bible says let us go boldly into that throne room. So we surrender our deepest sadness, anxiety, and sorrow to Jesus. And we do it with honesty. You never downplay them. You see, the lie of the world, the lie of self-help, the lie of self-reliance will always tell you that, "Ah, I'm okay. I'm good. I'm strong enough. I'll push through. I'll pull myself up by my bootstraps. I'm good. Have you ever talked with someone where you knew obviously they were crushed, they were broken, they were hurting, and you say, hey bro, hey sis, how you doing? Oh, I'm good. No, you ain't. It's clear to see. You ain't fooling no one. The, The worst thing you could do with your deepest anger, your deepest anxiety, your deepest anguish, your sorrow, your grief, is to deny that you're feeling it. To skip it. Or, or minimize it, right? But what we see here is what does Jesus do with his feelings of anguish and sorrow? He goes before the Father in prayer. You see, he knows the battlefield is coming in a few short moments. Jesus is going to be entering into the battlefield. So what is he doing now? He's preparing himself now. He's gaining victory now before stepping onto the battlefield of the cross. And it's in this moment where we go before the Lord in deep prayer where we say, Lord, I am not reliant on myself, but I need You. And we're honest with Him, right? And we admit that we need Him and that we're broken and that we're suffering and that we're hurting. And we do what the Bible calls lament. Lament. We pour our feelings out to the Lord, our struggles. We name them. We're specific with them. We go before Him just like David would lament. Commonly, almost routinely, David would find himself in the middle of a forest, walking in a circle, looking up at God, questioning, are you there? Do you see my pain? I feel abandoned. I think they're right here. I'm going to die tonight, Lord, unless you step in and you do something. And often, shaking his fist at God, David would lament, but then God would speak to him. And David would quiet himself. And through lament, David would finish lamenting in worship and saying, God, I know you're there. And you will be my shield 
You will be my strength. You will be my fortress. You will be my strong tower. You will be my shield because in you alone I trust. You see, when you go before the Lord like Jesus did here, this is Jesus surrendering his deepest emotions. Verse 39, he tells them to stay there. And in verse 39, he says, he went a little farther. That's the place. I need you to track with me. He goes a little farther. He goes to a place. A little separation between Peter, James, and John. Jesus goes a little farther. He goes to a place. And, and it says that he bows there with his face on the ground. That's the posture. So there's a place and there's a posture. What's the posture of Jesus? Face down on the ground. And then he, he prays. So there's prayer. So there's a place, there's a posture, and there's prayer. And he says, my father, if it's possible, let this cup of suffering. The cup of suffering is his pain. That's the pain that he's dealing with. We'll talk about what the cup symbolizes here in a moment. But there's a place, there's a posture, there's a prayer, then there's pain and then he says, let this be taken away from me, yet I want your will to be done, not mine. That's Jesus' purpose. A place? A posture? A prayer? A pain? Purpose. You see, you see when, 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 when there's moments where you're entering into the battle, if you're going to win the battle in private, in the prayer closet, and not on the battlefield, because if you wait to the battlefield, you're done, you will have to get a place. This place was called the Garden of Gethsemane. It was known as the place of crushing. Think about that. This, it was believed that there was a mill here and they would put the olives from the olive trees in that mill and they would crush these olives to make oil. I have a picture here of, of what the mill looked like and you can see it wasn't pleasant what these olives went through. I mean, they would place the olives in this little kind of barrel here and then they would push this heavy stone and it would crush these grapes. I mean, the heavy weight of the stone crushing the grapes because it would squeeze the oil out of it. And sometimes God will put you in a place where you're being crushed. What do we do when we're in that place? We want to get out. You see, when you're in that place, your posture matters. Are you going to shake your fist? Are you going to doubt why you're there? Are you going to complain and say, God, why do you have me in here? I mean, what am I doing here? This hurts. This is painful. What's going to be the posture of your heart? Are you going to stand chin up, fisting to God? Or are you going to bow low and say, Lord, your will be done? What is going to be your posture? I mean, look at the posture of this man praying, his face down on the ground. There's the place, there's the posture. And there's the prayer. Jesus opening his heart, releasing his anguish, his grief. What was it that he was praying about? He wanted this cup to pass from him. What cup was he talking about? You see, all throughout the Old Testament, there was references to the cup. The cup was a symbol of God's wrath. The cup of wrath. God pouring out his wrath on sin. Jesus wasn't stressing over death. He knew he came to die. 
Jesus wasn't stressing over the pain and the anguish of the cross. He knew what that, what that was. He knew what that meant. What Jesus was anguishing over was separation with His Father. He was saying, Lord, I don't want this cup to be on me because this cup is a symbol of Your wrath. That means I now become separate from You, God. And I don't want to become separate from You, God. So please let this pass from me was real pain he was about to suffer not only through the physical damage being done to his body but by the separation by Jesus becoming sin it says that there in 2nd Corinthians for our sake God made him to be sin who knew no sin so that we might become the righteousness of God Jesus was lamenting, was crushed over the fact that He would have to become sin. And there was no way to get out of this. Because we know nothing is impossible to God. But you know one thing that is impossible to God? God cannot lie. God cannot violate His covenant. And He knew the only way, the only way to fulfill The true redeeming sacrifice on the cross was for His Son to die and to become sin so that we might be made right through His sacrifice to Him. We see Jesus crushed here. But through this, what's He dealing with? His purpose. He says, yet not my will, Lord. Your will be done. Listen, we're all going to struggle through difficulty in our calling. I believe each and every one of you here is called to do something amazing. I believe God has created you uniquely, differently. There's, there's only one you in this whole universe. You know, there's 7 billion people walking this green earth right now. No one has your same uh, uh, eye shape. No one has your same fingerprint. You're an original. You're a, not a copy. God doesn't make duplicates. God creates everything. And what He creates is good and with a reason and with a purpose. And I believe each single one of you here is called to do something for His kingdom, to come to bring people to Himself and to do something great, right? But we all struggle with understanding what that looks like and saying, Lord, what does this mean? And God, honestly, I would prefer for it to look like this. But we see Jesus here surrender His preferences and gain His purpose. And what we see throughout Scripture is that when the chips became down, this is what people did. They found a place. Imposter, they would pray. They would know the pain of what they were facing. And in the end, God would reveal His purposes to them. You see, Abraham, before that morning, when he saddled up a donkey and went up the hill with his son, what did he do? He prayed. He came apart and he prayed. Rahab, when she basically turned on her nation and and, and opened the door for the spies to stay in her home, what did she do? She prayed that the spies would be kind to her. Jonah prayed for a second chance. Where? In the belly of a whale. He prayed pain, suffering. The posture of Jonah. Lord, I'll do anything. Give me a second chance. The disciples throughout the book of Acts would pray. They would experience God's power fall on them. They would be full of boldness and they would go and preach the Gospel. 
in your garden moments, I believe God will put you in a place and that place is going to feel like a place of crushing. Well, you will need to go and in posture, you will need to meet with God there and you will need to trust Him. Trust Him that there's a purpose to your pain. A.W. Tozer says this is why people stay stuck. Because you don't have the posture. You don't pray. You don't go to that place. You try to get out of there. And he says the reason why many are still troubled, still seeking, still making little forward progress is because they haven't yet come to the end of themselves. Jesus here was at the end of Himself. We're still trying to give orders and interfering with God's work in us. Remember, the battles of life are rarely won in the moment, in public, in the battlefield, but they're won often beforehand, in private, in the prayer, uh, prayer closet. So Jesus is praying. In verse 40, he returns back to his friends, and he says, when they returned the disciples, he found them asleep. He said to Peter, Jesus had this thing with Peter, right? <laughs> James and John, they were the sons of thunder, kind of knuckleheadish. But Peter, he had already spoken some things into him. He had already told Peter, look, dude, you're going to be the one that's going to deny me. So he speaks to Peter. There's a reason why here he speaks to Peter. And he says, you couldn't watch with me even for one hour? He says, keep watch and pray so that you will not give in to temptation. For the spirit is willing, but the body is weak. What Jesus is saying is, pray here. Win the victory here, now, in the garden. And you won't suffer the temptation, Peter, that you're about to go through. What did Peter do? He fell asleep. He fell asleep. He decides to wait until the battle comes to him. When the battle comes to him, it's too late. It's too late. Battles are never won in the moment, never in public, never on the battlefield. The battles are won in private, beforehand, in the prayer closet, Peter. Pray, Peter! I know your spirit is willing, Peter. I know your body is weak, Peter. This is Jesus' inner circle here, by the way. This is his closest disciples. A few chapters earlier, he had taken the same three to a place where they saw this transfiguration. Moses and Elijah there meeting with Jesus. They had seen the glory in the garden. Now they're seeing the grease. This moment isn't so glorious anymore. And when it was glorious, when it was a transfiguration, their eyes were fixed. Their mouths were open. They were in awe. Here when Jesus is suffering, they're fast asleep. I believe why these three, I believe Jesus, this is just me, I believe Jesus wanted them to see that if God is ever going to do something great with you, you should expect, you should anticipate a place where you go to be crushed. Any seed that, that produces fruit first has to be crushed. 
any seed that you put into the ground, I don't care what it is that you plant, any flower, any fruit, any vegetable, you name it, that seed, for it to release its fruit and for it to grow, first has to be crushed. And I believe Jesus wanted these three to see that if God is ever going to do something great in your life, you should expect to be crushed. But Jesus shows us how do you deal with the crushing place, posture, prayer, pain, purpose. I know some of you are tisking Peter here. Psst, Peter, what a loser. I wouldn't have did that. When's the last time you prayed for an hour? I've had people tell me, you know what, Pastor, when I wake up in the middle of the night and I, and I can't go back to bed, you know what I do? I pray. And within minutes, I'm asleep. I say amen, praise God. That's the peace of God. I'm not knocking that. That's good. But I know many people, when they want to go to sleep, you know what they do? They pray. So don't knock Peter here. Peter is us. I'm preaching to myself now. We could all pray more. The command that Jesus gives these three to pray is so that they won't fall to temptation later. He's teaching them, win the battle now. Win it now. This is dangerous, dangerous kingdom truth here, church. We're not people who pray and win the victory before. We usually wait till stuff happens to us. Then we start coming to church. Then we start showing up around home group. Then we start reaching out to our leaders because something crazy is happening, right? That's not how you win. It's also interesting here that Peter and James and John are rebuked for not being woke. For sleeping through the opportunity. Don't sleep through your opportunities. God does his best work when he sees his people praying. Some things are inevitable, even if you pray. This cross was inevitable. No matter the amount of prayer or what these three brothers could have had a prayer meeting like never seen before, Jesus was still going to the cross. Some things are inevitable. Hear me well. Some things are inevitable, but still we pray. Because God might not be fixing the issue when you pray. Have you ever prayed and when you're done, things are still the same? Welcome to the faith. God might not be fixing the issue while you pray, but God will be working on you while you pray. The issue may be inevitable, but your state and how you deal with the issue, God will work on that. And I believe Jesus was encouraging these three. Let's win this victory now, guys. Come on, stay up, watch, pray, so you don't fall to temptation later. He's not going to fix the issue. I'm going to the cross, but he wants to work in you. Peter, so you won't deny me to a nine-year-old girl. Verse 42, then Jesus left them a second time, and he prays again, my father, if this cup cannot be taken away unless I drink it, your will be done. He's praying the same thing again. This is another encouragement because if you ever found yourself saying, should I pray for that again? I mean, I feel like I'm bothering God, asking him for the same things over and over again. Hey, if Jesus asked for the same thing twice, so can you. 
when he returned to them again, he finds them sleeping again. For they couldn't keep their eyes open. For you to fulfill your calling, for you to gain victory, you're going to have to surrender the hurt caused by friends and family. Realize that their flesh is weak. Notice Jesus doesn't wake them up the second time. He doesn't wake them up the second time. You have to let the hurt that your closest people have caused you go. You have to let it go. If not, you stay stuck. When, when you, when you, when you uh, stay fixated on the pain and the hurt that's been caused to you, even by friends and by family, that's the definition of staying stuck. These were Jesus' inner circle, but Jesus understood, look, I know their, their, their spirit is willing, but their flesh, they're going to fail me. They're human beings. They're not God. And there's been some people who have failed you in your life. They've hurt you and they have faults. And you hold them up to the standard like they're God. So you never let that pain go. You don't forgive them. But you have to understand that they're flesh. They're going to fail you. Let that pain go. Jesus didn't let His friends' failures and faults stop Him from pressing into God's will. And neither should you. Listen and hear me well. This is not saying that you give people a free pass or that you become someone's doormat and you let people walk all over you or you take people that have hurt you and say, oh, we're all good now. Everything's better. We're best friends again. Let's go hang out. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is you make a conscious decision to release the people who have hurt you, release the people who have failed you, release the people who have caused you hurt and caused you harm, and you turn them over to God in His mercy. That's what I'm saying. I'm not saying deny it. I'm not saying minimize it. I'm not saying skip it. But I'm also saying don't curse it, don't nurse it, and don't rehearse it. Because that's what people do with hurt that's been caused by friends and family. They curse it. And then they nurse it. They let it fester. It's all they think about. Revenge and and saying the comebacks. And then they rehearse it. Ooh, if I ever see them, this is what I'm going to say. I'm going to post this and put them on blast. Just stay, wait till they see me. We curse it. We nurse it. We rehearse it. And that's the definition of staying stuck. It, It reminds me, did you guys hear this week of this big ship that's stuck in this canal? It's, 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 it's crazy. I have a picture of it here. It's like over a thousand feet long. It weighs over like some insane amount, like 200,000 tons or something like this. And it's stuck in this tiny canal and it's creating this log jam. Now nothing could get through. All the commerce has stopped. These ships cannot get to where they're going to. People cannot get their goods. Life cannot continue. Why? Because one thing is plugging everything right there. And I love the internet. Because the internet came through with some great memes with this. I mean, I don't know if you've seen some of them. I have a couple of them here. And it's like, okay, this is the boat. And it's like, okay, that's your depression. And this little bulldozer, that's like when people tell you, well, have you tried jogging? Like, you see what I'm dealing with? It's huge. You're asking me to jog? It's like bringing this little bulldozer to try to do something. Or what about this one, right? The the constant anxiety and sense of existential dread thanks to a deadly global pandemic. And that's me going for a walk. It's going to cure everything. You see, this... Yeah, the, the crushing despair of everything from this past year. And that's you trying to do your best. That bulldozer is when you curse it, when you nurse it, and you rehearse it. 
That's what you're doing there. It's not working. It's not getting you unstuck. That big, huge issue is still there, and it's causing this backlog, and God cannot move in your life. He cannot bring you to your purpose. You cannot fulfill your destiny if you don't let that pain go. Get unstuck. Get unstuck. Jesus could have just totally went off on these guys, but he doesn't. He doesn't even wake them up. Verse 44, so he went back to pray a third time, saying the same things again. Now, if Jesus could ask for things three times, so can you. What was he asking for? God, please don't let this happen. Is there another way? Have you ever prayed like that? Your child, sick, your marriage is falling apart, the bills are piling up, the repo man is at your driveway. Your loved one is breathing their last breaths. Have you ever prayed with that kind of desperation where you say, God, don't let this happen? Is there any other way? If Jesus could pray like that, so can you. Here's the circle. Because this third and final time in the garden where thousands of years before one man wounded humanity by saying, my will be done. In a garden, Jesus heals humanity to say, your will be done. We'll all struggle with the will of God. But confidence in the will of God only comes in prayer. I'm going to say that again. Confidence for the will of God in your life comes only through prayer because the will of God will not always be pretty rainbows and butterflies and unicorns. But it will be pain. It will be crushing at times. But when you trust that there's purpose to your pain, you accept the will of the Father. People right now I know are questioning the will of God. 540,000 funerals in the last 14 months. Tell me people are not questioning the will of God. Jobs lost, careers lost, retirement savings gone. Tell me people are not questioning and struggling with the will of God. Mass shootings in Atlanta, mass shootings in Colorado, mass shootings in Chicago every weekend. Tell me people are not struggling with what the will of God is. We gain confidence in the will of God only through deep times of prayer. I love what Tim Keller says about the straight line between prayer and the will of God. He says the basic purpose of prayer is not to bend God's will to mine, but to mold my will into his. That's good. If we're using our time of prayer as a soundboard for our preference, we're off. Because Jesus had his prayer answered here. I want you to see the difference in tone now after the third time Jesus gets up from praying. Verse 45, Then he came back to the disciples again 
And look at his tone. He says, go ahead and sleep. Have your rest. But look, the time has come. He's saying, it's too late. That's it. The battle has come to you, brothers. He says, the time has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. And look at the words of Jesus in verse 46. He says, up. Let's go. My betrayer is here. Victory. Just moments ago, Jesus is saying, anything but this, God, anything, anything, name it, God, let, let, let it pass, let it pass, anything, anything. But now the download has been received. Purpose has been established. God has spoken and said, there's purpose to your pain. The redemption of creation is behind this purpose, Jesus. So he gets up and look at his tone now. His tone is different. Now he's not crushed. Now he's saying what? Let's go. Let's do this. James, John, and Peter? Peter wasn't ready to do this. He was about to take out his sword and cut off a brother's ear. The battle came to him. Too late. Not prayed up. Not surrendered. Jesus was prepared for the test. The disciples weren't prepared. But Jesus was. Surrendering in this way means we lay aside the battle and we allow Jesus to fight for us. You know what the symbol is for surrender? International symbol. What's the symbol for surrender? Hands up. Any battlefield you go to, it's written in, even into the rules of warfare. There's rules in warfare. Think of that. You put your hands up. It's an internationally recognized symbol of surrender. Jesus comes back the third time. His hands are up. He's about to surrender in the flesh to human authorities. And the only reason he was able to have victory in surrendering in the flesh to human authorities is because he first surrendered in the spirit to heavenly authorities. And my challenge here for you today is how many of you need to put your hands up? When's the last time you put your hands up? You know what hands up also is? Have you ever seen a child? What does a child want when he puts his hands up? He wants his mom or dad to carry him. To hold him close. When we put our hands up and surrender, what God does is he comes and he picks you up. He knows the place of your crushing, but he promises to be there with you through it. And he promises to reveal the purpose to your pain when you have the posture of prayer, of surrender before the Lord. Can we stand together?